Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Jansen and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing over 50 years and like to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at jansons.com. That's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at drskipwren.com. That's D-R-S-K-I-P-H-R-I-N.com. Today's topic, interesting. Marijuana, drugs, addiction, booze. How does it show up on the brain map and the symptoms? We'll also talk about how neurofeedback can help with addiction and marijuana and other drug effects. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook. Well, Happy New Year, guys. We got everybody back together. Dr. Skip, how are you feeling? You're looking fantastic. <laughs> I'm feeling all right. Thanks. Happy New Year. Back to you guys, too. You got a, you, you're like me. You got a face for radio today. Exactly. Most days. So, so marijuana, uh, you guys are the docs. People come in. Uh, I'm sure you have a symptom checklist that they have to fill out, uh, you know, any drugs of choice you're using. Uh, certainly when they come in, they shouldn't be under the effect of any drugs, right, guys? Correct. Tell it's most helpful. If not, it, uh, it messes up the frequency. Like, you know, marijuana, it's going to be legal pretty soon everywhere. And, uh, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, that might be a boom to the neurofeedback business because, uh, what does marijuana do to your brain guys? You smoke it, you take it as an, uh, an edible, some people, it chills them out, but other, some, some people, you know, they, it increases their anxiety. Is that right? Agreed. And Laura, if I can jump in first, because I think my perspective might be a little different in that I'm assessing people uh, for neuropsychological evaluations, as opposed to maybe just focusing on neurofeedback training. Uh, so from that point of view, you know, I, I don't have numbers, but I would say a fair amount of adults that I see in Alaska uh, are taking marijuana for medical reasons, right? And oftentimes, it's something that they've found out or discovered that really works well with anxiety, panic attacks, uh, even attention to some extent. Um, so back to what you were saying, Pete, hey, is it better if folks aren't, you know, in, in, imbibing um, with whatever they're doing before they come to treatment, the answer is yes. But I have folks that take, you know, medical marijuana daily and, you know, it's part of their morning regimen when they, when they get up. Um, and so by the time they come for testing, it's already in the mix. Right. Uh, but again, I'm seeing folks that are doing medical marijuana um, for anxiety, a lot, um, some sleep issues, panic attacks, and then even attentional issues at times. Um, I guess maybe there's a question in there. Hey, can you tell if it impacts functioning? It's hard to tease out, right, without any kind of pre-post to say definitively, yeah, uh, it sure looks like there's a difference. There's also then the question of how do you factor in or factor out impact or effect of whatever they're taking it for. Right. So you're taking marijuana to counteract effects of maybe anxiety It counteract might not be the right word, but I think everybody knows what I'm saying. And so now you don't have anxiety, but you get the effects of marijuana. So what does that do? And we can talk about that in a sec, but then how do you then weigh that, I guess, against here's what happens when they're experiencing anxiety and how does that impact performance? 
And again, just back to my experience of working with folks, the, the patients I've seen and, and do see obviously think that it's a good trade-off, right? They'll, they'll trade effects of marijuana um, because they're preferable to some extent uh, to the effects of whatever they're taking the marijuana to counteract, right? They'd rather, they'd rather feel the effects of marijuana than anxious, I guess, is a simple way to put it. So that, that's kind of my point of view in our office's point of view. Laura, I'd kick it back to you on maybe what you're seeing and maybe what you're seeing mapping wise and, and those kinds of things uh, with cues or even training. Yeah, it, it, it's complicated. Um, I, I think the distinction needs to be made between adults and, and teenagers because it's a different ball game uh, for each of those. Uh, for developmentally for children, um, you're developing uh, white matter tracks during your adolescence. So I'm talking about brain stuff. But what white matter tracks have to do with speed of information processing and uh, this developmental process. So the, the, the bottom line is the brain is still in development. Um, you know, it could be well into your, your 20s. And using, uh, if we're talking about pot, using pot um, can affect the development. And what we see, I see it a lot, actually. I, I test a lot of teenagers. They come in for ADHD kind of symptoms or mood issues or something. And uh, I, I do the neuropsych testing on them. And I don't know, Skip, if you, you see a lot of this, but I, I see it probably once a week where kids smoking pot will come in and they look like they have Alzheimer's. Uh, or they, uh, I see a lot of psychosis. Wow. Those are the big things. Yeah, they, they, they're developing uh, psychosis and their memories, like they might as well not bother with school because if, if they're not taking anything in, in terms of memory, you know, school's kind of pointless. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing a, a Nancy Reagan here as much as um, I think the information's that, that kind of information is valuable to the teenagers. And, and what we're talking about is, you know, if, if we call it abuse or misuse, because it's a, my definition of misuse is if it, if it affects your functioning in a negative way, skips talking about adults and legitimately taking for medical reasons. But if we're talking about teenagers who are, you know, um, using it leisurely or experimentally, whatever the words are, uh, and it affects their schooling. Now, now we have a whole, whole other issue. And the problem is that sometimes a psychosis can, uh, I don't want to use the word permanent, but, but can be long lasting. And that's certainly going to affect your function. I do have somebody who, I, uh, who, who wanted to come in for neurofeedback and he turned out to uh, have psychosis and a lot of regression in his development and uh, largely due to the drugs. So um can have certainly a negative effect on, on adolescents, but there, there's a lot of research. In fact, I, I've personally did, sorry, there's a beep here, uh, did a lot of research um, that there's not a negative effect per se uh, with adults, although you can still have some uh, cerebellar issues and, and hippocampal issues, um, memory and um, uh lining up your behavior with with your uh, intentions and, and uh, mood mood dysregulation. So so you know definitely pros and cons and maybe we're playing good cop bad cop here, but um, uh, they can definitely show up on, on the scans. And uh, 
the, the specific things, um, you know, if I'm doing a scan and I see one of these teenagers with, with pot use, you know, we can kind of, you know, show them like it's educational, you know, it's not, not my judgment to make, but it's educational to show that you have, um, the pattern is you have frontal alpha waves. Uh, alpha waves are um, uh, the, the type of, we have four brain waves, I'll get a little into it. Um, we have slow, uh, medium and fast waves. I'll, I'll make it simple. Um, you don't want to have a lot of slow waves in, in the front of your brain. That means your executive functioning is affected by slow wave activity. And we can show, you know, the, the kids just in the neuropsych testing, hey, you, you look like Alzheimer's patient in terms of your memory, but we can show you on the scan, hey, look, the front of your brain is, is, uh, uh, is not doing what it needs to do. A lot of slow activity. We don't, we don't want your, your, the front of your brain to be slow, um, and we can absolutely point very specifically to the to the areas that are affected. So, if they get a brain map, um, I'm guessing it's the the frontal part of the brain, and the heat map will won't show red, but it'll show blue. I'm no, not necessarily. Uh, it'll just show too much slow waves, but still, yeah, there's there's an effect in the frontal lobe, and, and we can show it pretty clearly. Okay. Now let's just say you, these, these kids, uh, till, till the age of what, 25, 26, the brain is developing. Absolutely. Um, Throughout the lifetime it's being seen now, but I know, I, I think I know what you're asking Pete kind of frontal frontal lobe executive functioning things are known to be solidified into the mid twenties. But anyway, just to distinguish, Brain, brain growth and development throughout the lifetime is. So is if you have a kid that comes on, he's been smoking weed till 26, 27. He's, he said, all right, enough. I, I, I'm going to listen to Nancy Reagan. Uh, is there anything they can do to correct that problem? Can they create new pathways in the brain to, to deal with that developmental issue with neurofeedback? Yeah, that's the point. I mean, the, the white matter tracks do develop into the late twenties. Um, and, uh, you know, in essence, you're kind of halting with, you know, the brain's got a path of its own, a healthy development. And if you interrupt that path and everything is just kind of postponed. And the point is, you know, for any of the, so whether we're talking about drugs or any other kind of developmental issue, um, yeah, neurofeedback can help exercise the uh, areas of the brain that can promote the natural development that was unfolding properly. So yeah, you definitely have a a physiological issue in terms of what we can do with the neurofeedback, but then there's also, you know, the psychological issue of, you know, kind of what it means, you know, uh, for them to abstain from using and, and are they, you know, it has to be their choice to, to want to improve things. There's a lot of issues involved. Right. So if you had to pick your poison, I'm just saying to you, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just, you know, somebody's listening to this, you know, if they, they've been drinking alcohol for a while and they stop drinking alcohol and then they go to marijuana, pick your poison, which is obviously neither. But if you had to pick one, which is the, which is the lesser of the two evils? You, you got Skip's rolling his, his eyeballs on that question. Cause it's uh it, it should be on the ballot in Alaska. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not, not which one's better, which one's worse. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's a pretty frequent discussion. Uh, just to kind of reiterate or back up something Laura had said too, my, my intention to just talk about, hey, the folks I see that are, you know, taking medical marijuana are, are a particular subject or, or group, you know, that, that are doing it. The, the literature supports what you're saying, Laura. Um, common sense supports what you're saying too, in that if, if you're starting these things and imbibing um, recreationally or whatever, there, there aren't any kids that are taking it legally, you know, because um, it's not set up that way. But it, it is going to affect brain development and so is alcohol and, and to a pretty significantly detrimental degree, right? So if you're getting stoned and, and drinking all the time when you're a teenager, um, it, it affects the way your brain develops. And to back to your question, Pete, um, some of the longer term effects of alcohol use in adolescence tend to look more alarming um, than, than marijuana use. My gut tells me that there's just not as much marijuana literature yet to back that up or, or to even the race, you know, and, and maybe it's different. Um, but some of the alcohol impacts long-term uh, for, you know, adolescents uh, impact judgment, um, you know, how you interact socially. And, and obviously this has under underlying neurological neuroanatomical development that's impacting this. Um, but the, the impacts of, of the, uh, alcohol use on teens, uh, is, is prevalent. It's getting into organs. It's doing other things too, that again, with, um, just the, the development of, of neural imaging. We're seeing, hey, gut health impacting brain health and long-term alcohol use impacts the organs probably more so than um, marijuana, you know, lungs aside. So I don't know, Pete, it's hard to pick one over the other, but, you know, the, the joke up where we are, and it's not funny, but, um, you know, there's, there's less violence with folks that are stoned. You know, you don't, you don't get into a lot of bar fights when you're stoned. Um, probably because you can't stand up and swing, but you know, it's just, unless, it's just, uh, unless you're fighting over a bag of Doritos. Right. <laughs> right. So it's, it's a hard question to answer. I think, I, I think they both uh, in, in, have, man, a lot of, a, a lot of negatives against them. Um, you know, a glass of wine here, or there, everybody says is fine. seems like people that like to have more than a glass or two a day are the ones that support that. And then, you know, folks that use marijuana a lot say, Hey, I need it. Um, my, my general, I guess, view is if you have to take anything to feel differently, then something's up. And I know that's not a direct answer to your question, Pete, but you know, clinically it's at least a place to start. It's like, all right, what's going on with you? What's going on with your experience? What's going on with your system? Um, that you need to add something to regulate it. And we're obviously talking about, you know, alcohol, and marijuana, but we could say anything, you know, caffeine, what's up, yeah. what's going on. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll kick it back to you, Laura, but there, there's your non-answer answer, Pete, you know, kind yeah. of both. Right. I, I didn't expect you guys to answer. No answer is <laughs> right. it's fine. I just like to see you guys being uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Lord, do you want to leave that one alone? <laughs> uh, no, there's actually, actually, uh, <laughs> I actually did a talk on this uh, actually a long while ago, a couple of years ago, but, but there is actually more evidence for alcohol having pog- positive effects on your cognition um, versus uh, marijuana. So it ex- actually activates some things. So I, I think maybe the bottom line here is if you look for the, the research, you're going to find it. Confirmation bias, yeah. Yeah, and uh, 
I don't know, this is maybe maybe more tongue in cheek than professional, you know, uh, discussion, but, you know, I think of all the uh, cannabis research in the last five or 10 years, and it makes me kind of just kind of think about, you know, what are these researchers doing? Like, where does all this interest in, in pot come from? And, and maybe just the obvious, you get a bunch of researchers who, uh, uh, are interested in, you know, personal pot use and they, they want to study and, and, and validate, you know, the positivity of it. And, and that's okay. I mean, there's nothing, you know, not judgmental, you know, about that, but I'm just kind of curious that, you know, you know, pot cures hangnails these days, you know, you almost can, kind of see that and wonder kind of what's the motivation behind the research and, and uh, maybe it's- Well, just, it, cure, it cures tax deficits, right? It, that's what you hear. So, um uh, it's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, back, let's turn it around also that there, there's tons of research and we actually have a family member who just uh, went into hospice and I was talking to the uh, hospice worker yesterday and they said, boy, I, I, uh, I hope they can, you know, legalize marijuana across the board because there's tons of research for um, uh, cancer pain and using marijuana because it's maybe one of the only things that can relieve uh, those kind of symptoms. So she was, you know, 100% begging, you know, for, for that, that law to get passed. Right. Well, it's, uh, you have a, a diagnosis, you have something that's been prescribed and kind of what I was getting to is the stuff itself medicated people, people out there, self-diagnosis, Google diagnosis out there. You, we talked about two uh, downers. You got booze, you got marijuana. Any other popular downers that you see coming through the doors that, that's affecting the brain maps or your neurofeedback? The interesting ones are, uh, maybe this is what you're referring to, Pete, uh, hypoxia, which means uh, not enough oxygen uh, moving around in the brain. And uh, that's where you'll see a blue uh, area in the brain. And often we'll see that in, in uh, basic developmental disorders where parts of the brain actually just don't develop. There's, there's not a lot of electricity uh, moving around there. Um, but I, I've seen, I've had um, uh, kind of toxic exposure uh, patients. So um, people who are welders, for example, that or uh, other, you know, inhaling other kinds of fumes and gases and they are literally in, in brothers who uh, have paint in their apartments, uh, uh, killing off their own brain cells from um, that would be me toxic exposure. <laughs> no, seriously, I did a brain map, and then uh, I'm like, what's that navy blue in the back of my head? I mean, I'm a Bears fan, but that shouldn't be there. And uh, what was the question you asked me? Hey, you, you getting your house painted? I go, yep. Uh, so all you people there that are trying to, you know, redecorate, uh, don't be breathing in those paint fumes, no, no matter how much the contractor says that they're, they won't harm you. Wait, where am I? Okay. So <laughs> any more downers uh, that you see coming in, uh, affecting your, uh, the kids come in, adults come in, they don't tell you what they're on, but you do the brain map and you have to ask the questions. Any other downers that come in? other than those two for the paint fumes? Oh, well, well sure. Um, uh, all of your anti-anxieties, your uh, benzos, your uh, uh, Ativan and uh, those kind of drugs put, put uh, yeah, uh, CNS depressants. 
But but the interesting yeah. thing about them is that on the brain scans is they they look a lot um, like stimulants. So it's really hard to, to dis, uh, distinguish between the downers and the uppers on the scans because they actually look pretty similar. Well, let's go on the other side. Uh, yeah. Co cocaine. Uh, what, what does that do? Empties your wallet. Uh, yeah. Gets rid of any needed family. Uh, what else? It, well, in, on on the folks that I've seen, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that are struggling with cocaine use, it's it's gotten to a point where they're coming to see a neuropsychologist for functioning because they're not functioning so well. Um, how it looks on a scanned different answer, how it looks in the office um, oftentimes is folks have gotten to the point where they are experiencing some psychosis. And so, you know, are, are they, are, are they responding that way as a result of the cocaine? Has there been other things? Oftentimes uh, meth gets into the mix too, um, maybe because they're in the stimulant family. Um, meth, as you ref referenced, a wallet uh, tends to be a little cheaper. Um, but again, just to kind of stick to the answer, if, if you're, if, if when we're seeing folks that do use cocaine, um, yeah, it's happened while, you know, they were at the office, they were under the influence. Um, obviously that impacts performance. Um, it, it's, man, that's, that's one of the one, I think we're out of the realm of debating whether you can use it recreationally versus medicinally um, for effective purposes, right? If you're using cocaine for, you know, your own medicinal purposes, it's going to affect performance in a way that's just not going to meet the needs of most environments, right? Meaning work, home, relationships, it's, it kind of takes over. Um, so again, I don't know how it's looking on your scans, Laura. Um, we actually did one scan with a guy that was having difficulty and he, and he couldn't sit through the queue um, to finish it because he was getting too anxious. So, right, there's that, just maybe an anecdotal um, story about, about someone who was literally un, under the influence. Uh, we were trying to get a scan um, for you know purposes of, of evaluation, but also I was really interested to see how it would turn out. And we just couldn't even get the scan. So. so, so what areas of the brain is it hitting, Doctor Laura? When you're cocaine, meth is like, what's the difference between cocaine and meth as far as damage? Or they're both horrible. Well, uh, generally speaking, any kind of drug. So if you get a stimulant, you know, you're talking about Ritalin, you're talking about cocaine, you're talking about um, meth, caffeine, even uh, they will show it. Those show up on the scans, but also um, your antidepressants and your anti-anxiety. Interestingly, kind of regardless of what class of drug, and there's a few exceptions, but uh, they, they all affect the frontal lobe functioning and they all kind of look alike. It looks like there's a lot of activation in the front. So even, um, you know, like I said, benzodiazepines, things that like, like you said are downer anti-anxieties, they activate the frontal lobe. And it's interesting, and, and so does uh, like a Zoloft or a Prozac activates the frontal lobe um, and your stimulants, your Ritalins and those kinds of things also activate the frontal lobe. So there's going to be some kind of compensation mechanism going on that, that um, activates the, the, the frontal lobe. Because if, if you're slowing it down, 
you know, it seems like it compensates and tries to speed itself up. So kind of regardless of, of the drug, it, you can absolutely see the effects on, on your executive functioning. Hey, so Laura, back to the, the premise, right? my premise, uh, I don't own it, but I, I just threw it out a little while ago of, you know, you're, you're taking things to change the way you feel for whatever, you know, reason that might be. But if you're, if your brain is working slower, frontal lobes, right, that could show up and you're trying to quote, speed it up through an amphetamine, right. Or cocaine. And what would that look like initially? And then maybe, you know, here, here's your drug here, here's your brain on drugs. So if your brain's working slower up front, and I'm, I'm, I'm working this through with you as I speak, yeah, but also, right, right. you know, a- asking you a question eventually is, so it's showing up slow. And if you can real quick, just talk about frontal lobes and what they do, but we see a lot of frontal lobe, slower activity in folks that have depression, right? There, there's not enough juice per se to kind of get out of gear and maybe think your way out of things. I'm using kind of clunky, clunky phrasing here, but that that's that then hopefully describes the need or the desire like hey i can't get going here i'm looking to speed things up and so right you, you get an external substance to help with that um so if you can comment on that but then if you can also just talk to how neurofeedback accomplishes what someone might be setting out to accomplish with substances yeah you know um can re- rewind all the way back to even before we talk about neurofeedback, you know, we do do these neuropsych tests and I'm sure you get these, like I do skip that. Um, a lot of my referrals are for ADHD because they, they don't know what else to ask for. Like something's wrong. I can't concentrate. I can't. So executive functioning is, is something the frontal lobes do. Um, our brains develop from the back to the front. So as children, we're more primitive and impulsive. And as we grow up, hopefully we, we develop some self-control and that's what our, our frontal lobes do. Organize our behavior, help us plan, think into the future. You're able to keep in mind um, uh, important ideas and, and think through with logic and rationality, kind of what you're going to do before uh, impulsively responding. But I get a lot of these referrals and a lot of them are young adults or teenagers and uh, you know, they have low motivation. They can't get going, can't do anything. And we'll give them these ADHD tests. And so, you know, from the uh, you know, the observer, the teacher, the parent, whatever uh, they'll see, boy, he, he can't attend. He can't wake up. He can't do what he needs to do. Can't execute, can't do his laundry, can't do his homework, can't, can't do stuff. And so we'll give them the ADHD, there's objective tests we can give in there, we'll say inattentive, but, but the, the idea though is that they're low in arousal. They just can't wake up, can't get going. Sometimes you'll give them these sustained attention tests, which means, yeah, can you hold your attention on, on this one thing? You know, if I hold up my pen and have you stare at it for you know, five or eight minutes, can you keep your attention there? And, uh, you know, people who are attentive, kids who are attentive can't do that. And, and the point is, in discussing that, is that these are the exact kids who are at risk for substance abuse because they, they need external motivation. They need more reward to feel pleasure than the average kid their age. And, and you can, you know, there's a, a cyclical thing in here once you start using drugs. Um, but, but the point is that substance, they can't. Uh, maintain their just alertness, their vigilance, their arousal 
without an artificial substance. So there, there's a damage or a disruption in the reward centers. And Pete's asking, you know, what parts of the brain and we can get into the nucleus accumbens. And the reason for using the, the big terms there is that, uh, that, again, that's what Thatcher, Dr. Thatcher, who developed a lot of this neurofeedback uh, assessment, uh, computerized tools and databases and stuff. Anyway, he's coming up with um, uh, ways that we can access that area uh, with, with neurofeedback. So uh, we, we can tell when there's reward center disruptions or, or um, you know, they don't have, as Skip said, enough juice or enough energy uh, to, to get going. And um, those are the folks that we see who are, we'll say, abusing substances or using substances just to feel normal <clears throat> or feel awake. It's, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but <clears throat> we're talking about things, right? Substances. And I guess we could include medications. We've been talking about Ativan and, and some stimulants too, is, all right, here's a brain that we're hypothetically discussing or looking at, considering that doesn't have enough juice. And so there's a recognized conscious desire to change that state. And so then you introduce a foreign substance, right? Some external um, agent to alter that. And then that's, it becomes the new normal or however you want to say it. it what again, seems kind of obvious about some substances versus others. Maybe it's just a gradation and there is no difference. It's just to what extent, but then that substance creates its own set of issues. Right. And, and then we're, we, you know, terms like addiction, right. Your, your body wants these things um, because it, is working more efficiently or effectively or some word like that, right? Maybe not better overall if uh, you're draining your wallet, like Pete was saying, but something's changing for the better. Um, and then the body's like, Hey, I need this. My point is, I guess, is that those, those substances then develop their own kind of uh, ecosystem, right? Now, now there's a need, a desire for this separate thing. And that takes on a life of its own, which there's the addiction process. And so to come, I guess to come in maybe a moralistic stance here and say, Hey, you know, addiction's bad and you got to stop Nancy Reagan stuff. Right. Uh, I guess if there's a point here, it's just, there's a hell of a lot more to it at that point. And so then how are we actually working with folks to stabilize things, regulate things, get back to normal, maybe a, a better uh, way of managing whatever might be happening in the first place. And I think you nailed it. Um, a lot of the literature is coming back and saying, Hey, use um, of, of these substances in adolescence, in, in essence, jacks up reward systems. And so then we're adding things piecemeal to try to, you know, regulate these things. And it's, it's like a seesaw, right? But, but you're after it on the reward system thing. And, and I think just to give a plug, neurofeedback can be effective with that. And, and you sat up quicker and, 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 and straighter than I did when we were talking to Bob Thatcher, but um you know, when he was talking about the nucleus accumbens and being able to get after reward systems, you know, we're, we're, you actually asked him a question. When's that coming out? I think, when can I have that? Uh, but it certainly didn't go, go by me either. I'm like, hey, that's a big deal, right? That's, that's a big deal as far as brain function and addiction work, right? It, it's being more and more accepted. I think even in the, in just the way people are talking about it, Hey, it's a reward system thing. It's, I, I think we're moving past, uh, you know, character weakness, Right. Uh, and, and that, hey, it's brain stuff and, and we can get after it. So there's a plug there. So Dr. Dr. Laurie, you said uh, 
regarding addiction, whatever you take, uh, the quicker it works, the more addictive it is. Uh, how does neurofeedback uh, break that pattern? Because it's you're tripping. You want you don't like where you're currently at, so you want to go on a trip to somewhere else. Your jobs are to figure out well why do you want to leave where you're currently at. But if you're using a brain map and somebody's addicted, what do you see anything on the brain map to give you a clue of what's going on? Yeah, um, I think the the, uh, the phrase I always use is the shorter the acting the drug, the more addicting it is. Um, and, and that does involve the, the reward systems and, and these loops, as Len Kozio would say. Um, there, there's a there's, there's actually a, again, back to the uh, traditional neuropsych test, we have a test um, and it's called the Stroop test or it used to be called the Stroop test and it can be called different things, but it's the test that I'm sure a lot of kids actually come in, they've already seen it because they have these posters at school that kind of challenge them. But it's, um, there are uh, words uh, typed out, uh, the, the word, for example, is red. And, but it's in the color that the font color is green. So the job of the person is don't read the word, even though we know the word is red, read the font color for us. And so there's a part of your brain that's responsible for switching from your routine uh, response, which is reading to naming an ink color. And this, this flexible switching, it's in the front of the brain and um, anterior cingulate, whatever, but, uh, it's responsible for making that shift. And we can give that test and, and um, expect to see some very specific frontal lobe issues. In fact, uh, I call it the unicorn space, uh, the spot. It's right in the front. And just if you would think of where a unicorn horn would be on a, on a person, uh, right there in the center, and that would be uh, uh, dysregulated um, in, in not doing what it's supposed to, not being able to switch. And again, that, that speaks to the, the reward systems and people with low motivation because they're more prone to, to substance uh, risk. Um, uh, so yeah, there's, there's absolutely a, a pattern that we look for. The other thing, just real quick, is um, there's a type of training, uh, we call it alpha-theta training, and I won't you know, bore everybody with what that is right now. We could talk about it maybe another podcast, but it is the type of training that is used. Uh, there's actually a lot of rehab centers in Chicago that do do neurofeedback. And um, well, actually, you know, when, when things are open pre-COVID, but um, they would have neurofeedback uh, in these inpatient rehab centers sometimes twice a day. And they'll do it daily in, in their 30-day rehab. Uh, but this alpha-theta training, uh, people have to, I mentioned this before, but people have to sign a release. In fact, the release that I give out uh, kind of warns people that you may be less interested in your your uh, drug of choice if you have neurofeedback at all, even if that's not what you're here for. And uh, real quick, I had a gentleman uh, a couple years ago who was doing neurofeedback, and he was not a substance abuser. He drank alcohol every now and, now and again at a Cubs game or whatever, and he came in actually complaining. He said, I went out with my buddies to a Cubs game, and uh, I didn't want to drink. I just lost my interest. And um, I'm going to, you know, at least partially be blamed, I guess, that uh, he was doing our alpha theta training and he, he lost interest in alcohol and he wanted me to undo that. He's like, oh, I don't like that. I didn't like going to the game and being the only one not drinking. So anyway, th there's a, a significant uh, impact that uh, neurofeedback can have on, 
on uh, using substances. So let's let's try to help out the parents out there, the kids that are staying at the house. Are there any like uh, warning signs? They're at, they're acting out of routine. I, I I'm guessing. Any other tips that you you would offer? Uh, a parent to say, Hey, you know, your kid might need some help. You mean as far as substance use? Yeah. Just to be clear, seems obvious, but okay. Yeah. Oh man. Um, the one that always jumps out that just seems so apparent is withdrawal. Uh, right. And, and that's to varying degrees. Um, sometimes that's just part of being a teenager. Um, cause your parents voice sounds like uh, nails on a chalkboard, you know? Um, but, you know, withdrawal, mood change. Um, we, we see and talk to a lot of parents um, that, hey, my kid isn't the same kid type of description, right? And so then you can get, you know, that's obviously parents are already in your office, but, you know, to the folks out there listening, um, I, I guess what I'm trying to just say is like, you know, your kid and, and you're noticing changes. And yes, there's changes to be expected with pre-adolescence, adolescence, and mood and how the body's responding to new hormones and all kinds of good things like that. Uh, but w- when things are extreme or significant or severe in change with any kind of issue physiologically, right? Like maybe it's time to at least ask somebody. So if there, there's a general blanket approach for you, I guess. Right. Dr. Laura, you got anything on that? I know it's common sense, but you know, you got some parents well, out there. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of parents are pretty savvy in it these days, and and I think more parents are uh, involved in their kids' day to day, and and they're going to know when something's wrong per se. And even you know, I'm just thinking about just current day. Yeah, we're in COVID, we're in pandemics. People are you know kids are uh, you know studying from home and trying to you know how do you be how do you be an adolescent during COVID like. How do you, how do you, uh, I don't know, function? So, you know, I'd be curious, you know, a year or so from now, how uh, this has affected, you know, development in, on, a, on a number of levels. But I do have, uh, <laughs> this happened the other day, uh, had a young guy who's on probation and he's um, uh, got an ankle bracelet, you know, the whole thing. And uh, he found a way to get his, his uh, substances uh, into his bedroom window somehow. So, so you're going to get it if, you know, you're going to find a way kind of thing. So, you know, that's a little too obvious if you see your buddies, you know, uh, friends, buddies coming in the window. Um, you know, I see kids who are not on drugs who are, yeah, they're withdrawn, they're low motivated. I mean, you know, so there can be a variety of things, depression for sure, anxiety, trouble sleeping. You know, the younger kids are going to have more physiological symptoms of the, the sleep disturbances, the headaches, the stomach aches, the, um, uh, you know, complaints, the malaise, the, I don't feel good, you know, all, all of that stuff. And, you know, I, I think parents are savvy enough to notice yeah, if your kid's eyes are red, some, something's going on. So. Um, what, what, one last one we didn't talk about. Um, and I think some parents are concerned about, you know, the opioids and uh, teenage suicide and whatnot. How does, how can they be on the lookout for that? Or is there any clues? Jeez. Uh, ugly stuff. Yeah, it, it is Peter course. Um, wow. That is, that is a significant one. Um, I, the, the easy answer. So sorry, Laura, but I'm going to take that one um, is, 
you know, if you had any injury and you're being prescribed medications and pain meds for it, that that can often be an introduction uh, to these classes of drugs. That's not the only way, obviously. Um, it's just the easiest one for maybe a, a large portion of the population. Um, so keeping track on things like that, but wow, as far as the symptoms, um, again, withdrawal, um, it is such a big one. It, it, and especially now during COVID, uh, everybody is together and Pete, not to get off the, the answer to the question, but yeah, they, they, there's, so many studies coming across my radar. I'm sure yours too, Lauren, probably yours too, Pete, through neurofeedback, but the prevalence of mental health issues developing through COVID um, is off the charts, right? We haven't had anything like this that we would experience before, certainly, um, you know, as, as a, a planet, um, but even within our mental health system um, where folks are being forced to do certain things for long periods of time that are incredibly disruptive to, to, previous lifestyles, right? Point is that there's effects of those things. And so we're seeing uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, kind of off the charts these days. And so just to kind of wrap that back into, in this case, opioid use, but just substance use in general, like, hey, if if there's more mental health issues, and if there's a concurrence between substance use slash abuse and mental health issues, uh, i.e., hey, I don't feel good, I want to feel better. um, Aren't we kind of looking at potentially increased substance use if these mental health issues are increasing too. And if you're just looking at it by numbers, you got to say yes. Right. So I guess that just you know, uh, points to the importance of what you're asking, Pete, like, Hey, how do I know if things are happening without trying to be an alarmist? Um, so. Well, it's easier to, I don't know, but it, it seems to be easier to overdose with the opioid opioids. Is that true? That's why you see so so many of these accidental overdoses. Uh-huh. Yeah, the shorter the acting the drug, the more addictive it is, and that one enters your bloodstream and you know before you take a breath. So yeah, that that one takes you down immediately. Bad stuff. And then hey. on the suicide suicide uh, side of things. Um, it always seems to be in the spring, and the, it's not drugs, but it's it, you want to get on a trip, you want to leave this world. What what happens in the spring, where like Metra, you know, people want to jump in front of a train? You know what what's going on? You know with that, and he, what's going on in the brain to help get a clue that wow, this is somebody really depressed, doesn't want to be here anymore. It's a loaded question, I understand, but it's also one of the last questions we'll ask. Any, what's going on? Any tips for parents or anybody out there that are having these thoughts? I, Laura, if you want to answer neuroanatomically, that's fine. Um, I can kind of come at it anecdotally, at least from our our perspective. When I say our, I mean, you know, uh, parallel 62, you know, right um, up north there. Uh, with, with the darkness and the impact of light or lack of on mood and energy levels, Pete, um, when spring comes around, there's a change in light, there's a change in mood, there's a change in energy levels. And so again, kind of a a simple way to talk about something that's not simple, right? There's more energy to act on impulses. And so if you're, 
extremely clinically depressed. That's kind of redundant there, but um, you know, you, you, you can be so depressed where you don't have the energy to carry out any kind of thoughts of self-harm. And so moving into spring generally um, among other things, right. Brings a little more energy. It doesn't necessarily erase the desires or the feelings that would lead to thoughts of self-harm. It's just now you got a little bit of juice to be able to do something about it. Okay. So simple way of, of explaining something, but again, up where we are, it, it's not uncommon, right? And, and, and what you speak to is something that is, uh, you know, seen. Unfortunately. So it's just re- recurring thoughts of harm or just wanting to leave and, you know, neuro, you can see it on the brain map with, with certain spots of the brain and neurofeedback can help get rid of those negative vibes, recurring thoughts that are going on in the, in the brain. Is that right, Dr. Laura? Yeah, I, I guess I would say, I mean, it's very complicated, obviously, and I, I could probably talk for hours on, on different hypothetical things, but I think the one that sticks out for me is, is the way you're phrasing it, Pete, probably the best way is that um, uh, re- recurring thoughts, um, every now and then, maybe we'd all be lying if we didn't, didn't say this, that every now and then we have moments that we do want to escape, like, okay, I don't want to be here. And I don't know if we all think I want to die, but I don't want to be here. I'd rather be, you know, I'd rather be in Vegas. I'd rather be in wherever, Florida, <clears throat> in, in the cold weather. So we all kind of want to get away. And that's, you know, to a degree, that's a normal thought. But the point is, uh, unfortunately, with, with people as suicidal thinking is they, they can't stop that loop. They can't stop that, uh, you know, the initial thought is I want to get out. And um, yeah, the, the thought keeps looping and they can't get off that train and you know, I don't want to use the word train here in this context, but uh, you know, they can't, can't change their uh, line of thinking and that rigidity is, you know, unfortunately kind of goes in that direction with people uh, with self-harm. Um, but there's, you know, all sorts of other complicated, you know, things, you know, that can, can be an impulsive thing. They, they aren't planning it. It just happens, you, you know, sudden traumas, you know, there, there's, you know, many, many reasons uh, there's frontal temporal dementia. You know, if you think of uh, Robin Williams, you start digging into his his history. He had suicide, yeah. but uh, you know, you dig into it. Yeah, depression was was at the latter end of the the story, but the you know, you, you dig under there, and it's actually dementia that that uh, influenced that. So, so very complicated, and and it's you know, we don't want to simplify it or, or you know, kind of uh, intellectualize it away. Um, and we definitely. You know, I think the point of our practice and skip too is, you know, we're psychologists in neuropsychology. We know about the brain, but we know about psychology. So we're able to assess people from all angles and not just take a picture of your head. But, you know, we want to listen to the story as well and make sure we're doing the right thing. The picture can can, can help, but but it doesn't, it's not the be all end all, <clears throat> excuse me, of of helping people, just kind of a tool in, in, in the assessment process. Another point of data. Correct. Hey, Laura, real quick, and I know we're wrapping up here, but um, maybe to get a little too specific in a subject that's, yeah, wow, a a big one, right? Not to be insensitive uh, to it, but this rumination or or kind of, you know, just thinking thoughts over and over and over. um, I'm thinking ACC as far as an area where that would show up, right? Anterior cingulate, which you were talking, the unicorn, unicorn horn. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. Okay. And so can you just talk real quick on how the ACC can, when it's working appropriately, um, can facilitate thoughts coming and going as opposed to coming and staying? 
Yeah, helps you switch out of that loop, helps you switch from um, kind of an old, outdated, you know, uh, temporary thought. You know, again, we all going to have, I can say I do, have temporary thoughts of, hey, I'd like to be in, in a warmer climate right now. We I look out my window, there's snow, it's gray, it's icky. And would I like to be somewhere warm right now? Impulsively, yeah, but I'm a, you know, grown up, I have a job, I get, you know, mortgage to pay, et cetera. So, so the, I can switch out of that, hey, I want to get out of here to, okay, that's nice. Maybe you'll plan a vacation, you know, once COVID's over, whatever. You can think it through in a logical way, whereas people, you know, can just get stuck in, you know, on that treadmill and the interior single, it helps you switch out of, uh, you know, those loopy thoughts. Um, and, you know, we talked at one point about default mode network. So it, right the back of your brain, you know, is, is generating all these impulsive things like, Hey, I'd like to go to Vegas right now. Uh, but the front front part of your brain helps you kind of switch and determine what's an important thought, what's a logical thought and, and get you to be able to reason um, uh, and switch, switch out of that. And that area obviously could be trained through nerve feedback again, yeah, not absolutely. to belittle yeah. the magnitude of the subject we're talking about here, but yeah. okay. Absolutely. And just, I mean, I know I said that I wasn't going to belittle it, and I'm still trying not to. But you got to make up for last week's gift. All right, there we go. Uh, it's it is interesting, and I know we're talking about humans, but it, it's so interesting at this point, certainly in my career in psychology and the way we've been trained, Laura, and it, the way things have changed in the last 25 years, and how things are approached, and this idea of people being suicidal, and the approach was this again therapeutic talk therapy. Um, there's, you know, a, a wide range of ways that you can do that, of course, but it's about connecting with a human. Hey, you're feeling bad as another human. I'm going to try to connect with you and help you feel better. Nothing wrong with that. All right. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, Hey, we just had a three minute conversation on the specific likely brain region that helps at least facilitate these negative thoughts to the point where a human being consciously would act on them. And we're talking about unconscious neurological functioning. We're talking about brain stuff that now in offices we can address. And it's, and it, to say it's another tool, I mean, geez, talk about belittling something. It's, it, it's a profound way of interacting and, and helping folks with all kinds of issues. Suicide obviously is one that everybody wants to help with like, you know, now, um, but it's just interesting. Again, the, 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 the way things have evolved in not that long a time period where we can get down and dirty with some stuff with people and, and affect some real change. It's, it's encouraging, I guess. And, and we've, and we've, you know, talked about a lot of different things today that are harmful uh, and, and make it harder for us to, to deal with things. And, and here's a intervention, right? Neurofeedback uh, that that's man, it can be helpful. Okay. That could be a suicide. Yep. That, that could be its own podcast in its in itself. Uh, Probably should be, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I went to a, um, a a conference. I don't know if it was a year ago or two years ago, but prior to the the um, legalization of marijuana, at least in Illinois here, and uh, most of that conference was focused on marijuana. So, is it neuropsychiatry? So, these are psychiatrists trained specifically in in uh, neuro things and they were making a huge um you know point that you know the way people so marijuana is getting legalized or is legalized in a lot of places and um 
there's questions about like what dose is, you know, good, bad, too much, not enough, whatever. And the way the, the public is getting their education is through the, um, the dispensaries, right? So they go, you go, you know, you, you go, you want to buy some marijuana, it's legal. Okay. Hey, let me go there. And you say, you know, my elbow hurts, you know, how much should I use? And you're receiving the information from the marijuana pharmacist, so to speak, so that, you know, the guy behind the counter and who knows how well they are trained. I'm sure they're trained to a degree, but the point of this conference was that, you know, the doctors, medical doctors and psychologists and other helpers should be trained in it so that they're giving the right advice rather than having everybody rely on, you know, A, your drug dealer or B, the, the marijuana dispensary to, you know, give information. So we have to be, you know, a resource and we have to, you know, put across, you know, this um, helping uh, image that we're not judging and we're, we're not, you know, we can say, you know, 20 years ago, you know, if we're talking about marijuana, don't do it, you know, do the Nancy Reagan thing. Um, but people are doing it. And uh, what did they say? You know, like it or not, it's here, you know. So um, what did they say? Just like rock and roll, you know, it's coming, the revolution, whatever. So um, yeah, we have to be the, the educational source and we have to be reading these, these studies and, and be an available uh, person to answer these questions. And so the, the scans, the brain scans that we can do, we use it, at, I do use it educationally. Like it, um, here's what your brain looks like. And I can ask you from looking at your scan, boy, how much pot do you use? And, and, and I don't know you from anybody, but I could see it on the scan. And that, I think that feeds, feeds back literally, you know, a lot of information. And it's their choice. I mean, I'm not going to, just because uh, I say don't do drugs, that, that doesn't mean anything. It's like, oh, here, here's the information. What do you want to do with it? Um, and you know, that was the point of the conference. And again, the, the other point is that um, they, they kind of said the same thing, that developmentally, uh, you know, not a good thing for teenagers, just for the uh, long-term impact it can have. Grownups, there's not a lot of bad effects, um, especially you, know, you quit using for a month and there's, there's no really long-term effects. And maybe that's how it got legalized, whatever, and whoever did those research studies. But, um, but then they did make the huge point that it does help uh, in cancer patients and other you know, pain, pain management patients. And uh, the, the, there's a medical um, uh, demand you know, need used for it. Even you talk about opioids, kind of helping people transition off opioids, you know, the, the, the least harmful drug, you know, even if you transfer them to pot is better than being caught on uh, opioids, et cetera. So anyway, uh, we can play a good, uh, a main role in educating uh, the public as it's becoming legal um, across the country. Well, hopefully this podcast can help those people out there, give them another data point to look at with a brain map and also you know, another way to correct things, you know, with neurofeedback, it's not the be all end all. Nothing is, you know, so everybody's got something and there's something for everybody. Uh, next week. Oh, we got a special guest, Dr. Laura. You know who we got? We got uh, Dr. Dr. Russell. Yeah. Dr. Russell. She's, she's, she's one of the founding, uh, females in neurofeedback. Uh, she, uh, she tutored somebody I know. 
Um, anyways, Dr. Laura Jansons can be found at jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's drskiprin.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'd love to have some uh, other topics out there. If anybody's curious, just submit them to pete.neuronoodle.com. We'll make sure we'll address it on the podcast. And uh, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right. Cue the music.